want to, hey, buddy, um, I know that uh, you haven't seen me in a while. So you want you want to do a show or? Dude, always always a pleasure talking to anybody outside the apartment. Yes, why don't we do a show? I'll tell you what, just for future reference, don't insult your wife. Uh, that's not what I meant. No, 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 no. I look. No. She's no, great. Kinda. She's grateful for the time she gets to spend online looking at people that aren't me. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't want. I thought you said she's grateful for the time of not being anywhere near you. So she's actually, yeah, I told John, you should podcast more. You, you can't see this. It doesn't matter to the listener right now, but um, I've changed locations and I'll be, uh, I'll be, Nicole starts up uh, work on Monday. So I'll be, I'll be in the guest room from now on. That's okay. I moved myself yeah. to the garage. You, so. You've moved a thousand times, dude. You've moved more than like a uh, uh, struggling comedian just getting to Los Angeles. You need to understand something. This this whole world that we're we're we've been forced to be in, um, you know, we have to we have to make changes. We have to adjust, and I'm adjusting in my own house. Everybody, I mean, quite frankly, if it wasn't the kids and the wife that had needs for what they needed to do in the house, I mean, honestly, if one of the dogs needed something, I'd have to move. I'd have to move out of their way too. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, a relationship with my family is well. Wait, wife. Kids. I'm number six in the family. That includes. I mean, yes, we joke about it, but you're also the kind of person that would put all of your family and your dogs ahead of yourself. Um, probably right. So that's yeah. you're just a good person in general. Also, um, my OCD is kicking in extremely high because I'm trapped in the house. So the, the idea of creating another world in the house mm-hmm. was like right on point for somebody like me. I mean, outside of washing hands, I'm really good at organizing. Really oh, dude. Yeah. I was literally looking around this room I'm in. It's like a, it's like a back bedroom. Right. And, uh, I was like, I could literally put all my stuff in here. Like that was the stuff that was mine, mine before I got married, you know, before I moved in with my wife, it was just mine. I go, I could fit, I bet I could fit it all in here. It would be super awkward. It would be uncomfortable. But I could get it all in here and I could live in this room if I had to. Just this room. If I had to. I like how you're thinking outside the box. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> but that's what I like about I'm what I'm reading. Not reading. I sh- I'm reading Instagram. No, no, no. I'm looking at a lot of uh, tiny cabin pictures on Instagram. You ever look at those accounts? Uh, tiny cabins? No. Refurbished vans? Oh, dude, I could... I could totally live in something like that, man. Furbish <laughs> vans. You know my love of 70s stuff. Every van that I have seen show up in a 70s show has carpeting inside of it. And actually, on that note, unless you have something else to bring up, there is somebody. Our guest today is unique to our uh, podcast journey because he and I spent a lot of time in a kick-ass van. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, and this, what I mean by this being unique is the fact that this is the first time that we've had a musician, uh, right? I believe, right? This is, is this the first time we've had a musician on the show that you can think of, John? Are you talking to me? Oh, sorry. Yeah, you're. I know you're talking to the guy. The guest. Sorry. <laughs> For the last five minutes, I'm talking to you. What are you, I'm like, Morris? What if, what if I was like, dude? This was a great interview, dude. Whoever this guy is, you're talking to Brian. I love him, dude. Very funny. Uh-huh. Um, we've had we've had musicians on, but they've been also actor. Like Mike Watford's a musician; he's oh, in a right, band, right. also an actor. Um, oh, I'm trying to think. Our magician friend Did, was in a band. Uh, Rob Zabrecki was in um, Possum Dixum, and then um, uh, we had David Shepard, who's a composer, right. uh, musician, 
Um, you know what I mean? Like I, I consider that also he plays music, you know, he's a composer. So would have been easier if you just said, no, not really. And then I could have really got into well, it. Well, I felt yeah. that would have been a disservice to the people we've had on. Before. Just, yeah, it's kind of like, yeah. but anyway, so this is a long time friend. I realize we've known each other for 30 years and, <laughs> and this type of situation what we're in right now, which is a social distancing world, people have been reconnecting and he and I connected via Facebook, via live stream. And it's been nothing but a blast reconnecting with him since then. But our guest today is Goran Kral. Goran, uh, um, uh, formerly, or I guess still technically the Guffs, yes or no? How would you, how, how does that work? Like, do you still say yes? Like, I know band. That Never band broke up. Is. I don't know. I don't know how the band thing works. You explain it. Goran, explain. Yeah, I still say Goran of the Guffs because uh, when I put the Guffs behind it, I tend to make, <laughs> I tend to make more, more money. Oh, okay. All right. So there is a, there's a goal there. But it's it's funny because I you know a lot mm -hmm. of bands just stop. And by the way, Gordy, you, you probably uh, I don't know if you've heard any of our shows before. I just want to warn you in advance: we are we're going to go all over the place. I'm ready. And the fact that you and I have known each other for thirty years, it will go all over the place. But um, you know, just don't worry; it'll all find its way back home. And uh, you've been kind enough. I told John he was excited about this. You were kind enough to actually play a song for us as well because you're set up for that. So. This is going to be a fun one, but also yeah, use, use me any way you want me. I'm here I've, in Chicago to be used. There you are. Shy town. You, are, you are in Chicago, right? You guys got snow, huh? We did the other day, but now I'm looking out. It's nice and sunny. It's about 55 degrees, which feels like summer. So, Oh, man, yes. Yeah. 55 in Chicago is put on sandals and go outside. But remember, John, like this is the thing that, that he's still going into. I remember like that you're at that time of year where it's inconsistent. Like it'll be freezing one day and borderline yeah. summer weather the next. Yeah. As a kid, you don't get it. You're like, dude, this is it. I'm going to wear shorts the rest of the, oh my God, moon boots again. How is this a thing? Yeah. It's like dating a woman. You just, oh yeah. You, you don't know. <laughs> kind of keeps you on your toes. As a writer, <laughs> as a writer, it makes it kind of fun. It, hel it helps inspire you nonstop. Uh, to be beaten up you but uh but and you you're a lifelonger uh you you grew up in illinois correct so i'm an indiana oh, no, indiana yeah indiana native northwest indiana so everything was chicago influenced so i'm a chicago fan and um i've been in in chicago for the last 20 some odd years so um all chicago sports yeah yeah i'm a cubs guy nice i was closer to uh Sox Park, but oh, um, yeah, Bears fan and uh, Blackhawks mm -hmm. fan and all that kind of stuff. I Are you excited so, for that uh, Michael Jordan documentary? Ooh, yeah, it's coming wait. out tonight, I think. Right? Really? I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it'll be by the time it'll it's out. Let's it's out. It's oh my out. god, it was so good! I can't wait to watch it again and again. I will say, I remember. Just for those of you who don't know, I was a tour manager for the Guffs. We're on Atlantic Records many, many moons ago, which we'll get into that in a little bit. But the only reason why I bring up the tour manager thing is we would always, our route back from being on the road always came through Chicago, right, Gordy? Because we would go to your brother's, mm -hmm. uh, we would stop off at your brother's place, which I believe is where we were storing the van and the equipment and all that kind of stuff at the time. Do you remember, though, speaking of the Michael Jordan thing, do you remember we came home the night, late that night when the Bulls had won a championship and we saw a car. Fire. Do you remember that? Yeah, it was like 90, what was it, 96, 95? 96, I think. Yeah. It, I just remember us kind of going, it was so surreal, right? Because we were driving into this very bizarre, like, 
almost kind of like Escape from New York, John Carpenter kind of vibe in, in Chicago. Was So they won it in Chicago or did they win it when they were in Phoenix? Was I that the Phoenix? I don't think they were home. I think these were people that were reacting. At Just out in the streets. Yeah. Yeah. Because because we were we were we were touring at the time supporting um, the Atlantic Records album, which that came out in what year? Gorn. 96. We 96. The, uh, so they would have been 96 when we were yeah. on the road. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we put out the end, yeah we put out the independent version in '95 and got signed, and then that came out in '96. I remember uh, when we were coming into town. I was, yeah, I think I was uh, smoking a bowl, so I was high. <laughs> and uh, when all that stuff was happening, I think you you made me feel like it was like a homecoming parade for me. <laughs> This is for you, you guys. Brian's like, look, you don't pay me enough. Look what I do here. Look yeah. what I organize for you. You're like, dude, they set a car on fire for us. Like, yeah, I'm Brian. I get stuff done. <laughs> he does. He still- uh, what, one of the things, and, and one of the reasons why I was excited to have you on as well, and, and we connect is because you um, you do have an, a new, a solo album coming out. By the time this hits, it most likely, or most people that will listen to this, it's either coming out or it will be out at that, po- at that point. And, and what is the name of that album? It's called Airports and Alibis. Okay. And um, that is, uh, uh, and when you do a solo album, um, is it all you on that? Or did you, do you have some guys that you call in and is each al- is each track like di- with different people or do you have a go-to group of guys that play with you? I, I have a go-to group, but um, when I went down to uh, Nashville, I moved down there, uh, moved the family down and uh, got a songwriting a pub deal with an indie in town all that stuff that i'm releasing now is stuff um that's been written down in nashville so it's all co-written type of stuff and the goal has always been to try to write a great song and maybe have a blake shelton or somebody like that pick it up and what i realized is i've probably wrote more songs over the last so many years um way more than i did with the guffs and a lot of guffs fans are still kind of you know, aching for some Guff's music. And I finally just had a huge body of work and decided to put it out last year. So I put out a, um, a, an album called Under a Nashville Sky. And it actually got, without me even knowing it, um, it got nominated for a whammy, which is the Wisconsin area music industry. Uh, oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. Congratulations. That's so great. I put it out because when you're a writer down in Nashville, um, it's just like this graveyard of songs. You just, the talent down there is so deep and there's so many songs that people have never heard. Um, I have, I have friends that are like, wow, that's a great song. How come nobody picked that one up yet? I'm like, cause the talent's so deep that there's a thousand other ones that are just as good, if not better. So I finally just said, you know what? I'm writing this country pop type of stuff. Some of it is more alt pop. So I'm going to put out you know, a body of work to kind of represent what I've been doing over the last, you know, so many years. And I had another, you know, group of 10 songs that I liked and decided to put out Airports and Alibis, which comes out uh, the 21st and it'll be on all digital streams. So when you, you going back to the the, the reference uh, of Nashville, you, you obviously made a commitment to, you know, be at both places, but you, you know, you really hit on something. There's this big world that we learned a long time ago when we used to tour together that of competition that's out there. Right. And how hard it is to crack that nut, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but 
it is interesting how you're describing Nashville to you is what I think Los Angeles and New York is to a stand-up comic. You go, ha ha, man, I'm, I'm really crushing it right now in Milwaukee or Chicago or wherever. And then you go to these meccas and you have no idea how much talent really is there. And you can get lost in a sea. And then at some point, I know for uh, entertainers like John and I, we kind of just look at it like, well, you kind of got to find your own voice. You got to find your own journey and you have to enjoy it. Do you see those same parallels in your life since you went to Nashville and how, and how you are, how you've adapted since what your ideology was when you got there to where you are now? Absolutely. When I went there, I thought um, within the first so many months, somebody would start cutting some of my songs. And I learned sure. real quick that I was the rookie and I had a lot to learn. So I remember going into rooms from the beginning and just blown away by the talents. And I'm like, why isn't this person that I'm writing the song with huge? Um, so, you know, I was a, you know, a, a, a big fish in a, in a small pond in, in Milwaukee and coming down to, to Nashville, I'm no one. And when you really look at, you know, where I'm at in my songwriting career, I'm probably like a, a D list songwriter. And I think I'm writing great songs. That just kind of shows you the talent, um, that's down there. So it's, it's hard to, to make it. So I've found joy in just, uh, when I'm in a room, um, if we can write a song that I like and the person I'm writing with likes, then there's a good chance that somebody else will like it. So that's been the goal is to write great songs and find joy in the fact that this is what I get to do with a uh, part of my life. Um, it takes the pressure off. And then, you know, if something happens naturally, then it happens naturally. But I've realized, and just probably the same thing for you guys, it's all timing. It's all luck, you know, to be uh, in the room at the right time, to have the right artist at the right time looking for that type of uh, sentiment that you're writing about. So it, it, it's all, it's all timing. So um, well, let's... I'm, having, I'm having fun. I'm having fun doing it. Let's jump way back. Okay. So where did the music come from for you? When did it all start? Because you're also, and I'm just shooting straight because I was, I'm still to this day, I'm really, really, there's two things I'm still pissed off at you about. One is. Tonight on Dirty Laundry. No, no, no. It's not Dirty Laundry. He's going to start Your laughing sister? when I say, he's going to say, <laughs> he's going to laugh. Whoa. It didn't happen. But, but um, he's going to laugh when I say these two things. Two things that I'm pissed off at you about. One, we all played soccer and he and I went out and played and I used to play goalie and I was a really good goalie. And then he was like, oh yeah, we can go kick some soccer balls around. I couldn't stop a single one of his shots. And he was just laughing at me and he was doing all these shots and just kept scoring and scoring and scoring to the point where I just quit. That's one thing because he's really good at soccer. Two, he visited my parents' lake house. And I was like, listen, uh, he's like, can I go water skiing? I'm like, you can, but like, you know, let's, <laughs> what, let's do it one step at a time here. Um, he's like, well, can we just like, what, what is this one ski thing? I'm like, once it's, it's, it's a lot of work. He gets up on one ski, like three fucking seconds into it. And sure, like, sure, sure, sure. How about barefoot? He's like, can I do it on my hands? Look at this. <laughs> he, let's just put it. He's laughing, but he natural he's talent motherfucker. <laughs> and I'm super good looking. That's, that's, that's I mean, that's, it's always a son of a bitch. <laughs> so and I just signed a modeling contract just from someone hearing my voice. 
And he plays <laughs> instruments. Get him the fuck out of here. All right. So um, I just realized. Was there? Can I ask a question though? Was there? Was there an air of because, like you said, you were kind of a big fish in a smaller pond in Wisconsin? Was there an air of like? I think I know what I'm doing. I'm a, I'm a songwriter. When you went down to Nashville at first, or was did you go down there knowing that you were going to be thrown into a pool of like the greatest songwriters in the universe? No, I had no clue. Yeah. But I didn't go in thinking that I was the greatest songwriter in the world, uh, but I had no clue that the talent was that deep. And I'm a student of life, you know, as far as, you know, it's funny, Brian, because I remember those instances. <laughs> of um, course you do, because you won. Yeah. I love to win. <laughs> Winning's good. I'm, I'm, I'm like, uh, I don't even want to say it. I don't go there. Um, Sorry, we, did I break your train of thought? Yeah, but I, I was just thinking about the whole winning thing. Yeah. But uh, no, I'm a student. So I like to, uh, you know, I like to be great. I don't like doing things that I stink at. And I, I'm, I'm a humble. So uh, just like uh, that was the first time I water skied, but I, I took instruction well. And uh, I've watched. And I mean... I thought it was common that the first time you try water skiing, you drop a, a ski and you drop just, a ski and then yeah. you start making some crazy waves or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And then you just go right to shore and your penis falls in a hot chick and you're like, man, water skiing is easy. I like this. It's so easy. <laughs> but, let's, but let's talk about, you know, pre like me is, did you grow, did you go? grow up and go to school like what was your uh where did you go to high school and all that kind of stuff and and where did sports meets music because those two things don't typically go together right i mean yeah especially in the midwest yeah. so um being a uh first generation uh yugoslav what used to be yugoslavia and technically be a bosnian serb uh, my father was a uh a professional soccer player in yugoslavia and uh, was a 68 Olympian. So soccer, awesome. was, soccer was in my blood. And then on my mom's side, um, art and music uh, back. And water skiing. And water skiing. That's how she gets yeah. involved. It's like. Yeah. <laughs> and my mom was an Olympic water skier. So there you go. Lots of art and music on her side. So she's got a couple brothers who are in the, uh, were in the uh, symphony for um, the country, you know, so it was wow. a big deal. So uh, soccer was in my blood and music was in my blood, but, um, I was a good soccer player and I, and I ended up getting a ride to, uh, Milwaukee and that's, was a godsend. And it's really interesting because full circle, um, the coach that recruited me, uh, played on the 68 Olympic team with my dad and that huh. kind of was interesting because at the time, he didn't know who I was. And then that, that oh, wow. a full circle moment for me. And then it was a godsend because music started. Um, and uh, I was always, when I was young, I wanted to play piano. So I was classically trained as piano uh, on the piano. And then I learned how to sing unwillingly. And then, What do you mean by that? What do you mean unwillingly? Well, it's kind of like embarrassing when you're, you know, I'm watching my kids and my, my son Hayden has a wonderful like voice. And I knew it right from the beginning. Like, um, he just he cried. He cried like he, Pavarotti. He cried, he cried like <laughs> Pavarotti. He cried in, in key. And I remember when I would sing with him as a youngster, it was just kind of in, in the blood. Wow. So um, I, I, I guess I had a, a knack for singing, but I was always embarrassed. So, And I'm watching him be embarrassed of his voice. So it takes a while to realize that at 12 or 13 or 14, when all of a sudden girls start like, oh, wow, he's got such a 
pretty voice. And then, you know, that carried into uh, uh, winning Battle of the Bands in high school, and that carried into uh, uh, Milwaukee. And we're on the soccer team and ended up uh, um, rooming with Scott, our drummer, who you know very well, Brian. Yeah. And uh, we're like, hey, let's start a band. I used to, you know, win all these Battle of the Bands because I'm so used to winning. <laughs> You're like, I used to water ski professionally also. Yeah. This so, is, uh, this is late, late eighties. Yeah. So this yeah. is like 87, 88, 89. Then we start the band and, uh, all of a sudden shows are going crazy. We decide to put out a cassette. And yeah. A I love it. I love it. A cassette. Yeah. So what and was the, what was the first one? So what was the first staring, thing you put out and staring what, was at it, the sun. what was on it? Yeah. It was staring into the sun. We had our big hit under breath. Which we still play to this date, which is crazy as a, um, that's a crowd favorite. So that just kept on blowing up and blowing up. And then you obviously got to witness, you know, the evolution of it. And as we kept playing, we just kept having more success and bigger crowds and more women in my bed. And it was just like, (laughs) and then much more water skiing medals. And then, then I, yeah, I went to, uh, well, what's interesting. And, I, and I, I'm curious to get your take on this because you guys were you, there. There are two different groups of people that are very, very familiar with your early days, which is both Milwaukee and Chicago. You guys, Chicago, also from a music standpoint, was not easy to crack into. I want to be very clear about that. There's some be- there's some amazing clubs down there, but there's but starting in Milwaukee, I've always told people at that time, all the way through, I think the mid '90s, Milwaukee was an amazing music live music independent indie band scene would you agree with that gordy absolutely i mean and, and i, I coming did, off that, the, did you notice that at the time how it was having how it was it was forming you guys as a band yeah absolutely you there was a reason that we started the band because you'd go out and see the bodines or violent femmes who those bands were already getting well established and um ex cleavers and all these other bands that it had a great scene so we wanted to be a, a part of that and you know the east side and and, and, mm-hmm. and am i am i being uh true when i say that chicago was a difficult market to crack into yeah i mean because you had smashing pumpkins and you had all these other bands that were just it was like uh we were in the uh the minor league and that was like going to the majors yeah, there was a so, lot more going down there. Actually, but you, now you just realize, now I feel stupid. Uh, one of our guests was also Louise Post from Baroque Assault, so I totally forgot about that. Yeah. So, so, yes, we've had some musicians on. Didn't ask her to play, but yes. You were just trying to make me feel special. I was. Yeah, you know, I get it. I mean, I get it. And but then John, John just deflated it. With he like, well, I was trying to give credit where credit is due. I mean, And I also have an old man brain that just can... I. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, we're gonna go down. We're gonna go down a rabbit hole here, Gordy, just because it's, I'm gonna start remembering things just by having a conversation. But I will say that, um, yeah, you guys got really, really popular, and at that time, you know, tracking our relationship together, I was, I obviously went to UWM as well at the time. I was in film school, but then a buddy of mine got me in at a, what, which was at that again back then extremely influential college radio station WMSE was very influential college radio mm-hmm. but not just college radio i mean this was what KCRW would be like in los angeles it's very influential as well if you got on there and you know obviously every 3 hours was a different dj but 
if you got enough DJs to support you and play your music, it did make a difference in that scene. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. That's what kind of started it. And then uh, New Rock 1021 caught wind of it and just took it to another level. They made it corporate. Yeah. We... Well, no, I think at that, so at that time, um, I, 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 I can't remember how it all played out, but um, I was heavily involved in the programming at the commercial radio station. This would have been, this is the post Nirvana. This is when Nirvana changed everything about radio, right? Yeah. Like, so yeah. um, you had Q101 in Chicago, you had K rock out in Los Angeles. These were influential radio stations that were playing alternative music or playing and we're really starting to break more what, what at the time would have been like, you can't be that indie and then all of a sudden not be indie anymore and start being played on the radio. Those days changed. Like it's almost feel, felt like overnight, but it wasn't. It was like a little bit of an evolution. And I was a huge fan of the band. Two of the guys in the band, Brian Pettit at the time and Scott Schwabel were I, uh, childhood friends of mine. Uh, and also in the Guffs was Morgan Dolly, which, uh, I'd be curious. I can't remember how you guys met, but, and then your, your brother Dayon was also in the band as well. Yeah. Morgan was a Marquette guy. We just met him. Cause we, and, and was it, was that the classic, like, Hey, we're having a band. Let's try out guys kind of thing. Is it, that it was, where that came from? It was actually a classic at the time we had a guitar player, Tony Luna, who, you know, yeah. and, uh, it wasn't working out and we were starting to get a little bit popular and he was in a decent band on the Marquette side. We heard about him. We went out and watched them that night. We're like, hey, he's like, oh, I know you guys. I'm like, we want you to be our guitar player. And he's like, all right, see you guys. I'm going, <laughs> I'm going with the guffs. So, uh, it was kind of one of those moments. That, that easy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was, it, it was such, it, to me, what I loved about that time is it was a groundswell. Um, it was, it was you guys, um, was, was Wild Kingdom floating around Absolutely. back then as well? So there was yeah. a lot of, t a lot of bands. Citizen like King just, was, was. Which evolved from Wild Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're starting to, to get noticed. So basically what ended up happening was I started pushing for, because of how popular the, the Guffs were in Milwaukee, I started pushing for, to, for us to play them on the radio and we played Crash. And for those people who don't understand how the record business works, they were all over the United States tracking any bands that were that were becoming popular on radio stations. And I'm going to stop there. And, 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 and Gordy, I'd rather have you explain like how the process of record a record label and or that how that whole world going from an independent band to New York calling and you know showing interest. It was um, probably the happiest time of my life. Um, what you know, and a lot of your listeners don't know, because none of them know who the hell I was, or am. <laughs> but I was uh, in uh, school at the time. I was doing graduate school. I was at Northwestern Dental School. And uh, we got a call my last semester, and uh, Atlantic Records is like, hey, we heard you guys on the radio. We want to come check you out. And, uh, we're interested in signing you. And here I am thinking like, oh, I'm going to fucking blow off my, my last, uh, my boards. I'm going to be a rock star. And I'm glad that I didn't do that. Um, <laughs> cause I thought this was it. I thought this was the ticket and hindsight's 2020 was probably the worst decision we ever made is to, it, to sign explain that, explain why I don't think, I mean, I, I know why, but I would be curious yeah. to hear from you as so to why you, we were we were organically growing. So what started in Milwaukee was creeping into Chicago and now we're playing places like Metro and, yes. you know, getting close to selling them out. 
um, you know, to then expanding to Minneapolis, to expanding, you know, to Detroit, to getting down to Indianapolis. So if we would have continued that, that organic groundswell, heading into a major allowed us an opportunity, but we got signed by somebody that was low on the totem pole, a wonderful human being, Nick Casanelli. But we didn't get, wow. si- we didn't get signed to, uh, Atlantic, you know, the way Matchbox 20 got signed and they came out at the same time we did. They got signed by, uh, Shapiro, which was like the, the GM. So it's like, you know, having like the vice president basically signing you versus like the new guy and the new band. So you can tell right away that they liked what we were doing because of what we created in Milwaukee. But you can tell as we're on the road with Matchbox 20, where the focus and where all the attention was going. Cause back in the day, you know, they signed 10 bands, threw them up against the wall and whichever one sticks, sticks. Um, things have obviously changed, but I, I, what ended up happening is now that, that opportunity was awesome, but so was the fall. If we didn't make it to the next, if the album didn't connect, then it was like, see you later. We're off to the next thing, which then becomes tainted. And then all of a sudden, Oh, it's the guffs. They got dropped and all that kind of stuff. But the first album did pretty well. Um, and we got a chance to do another record, which is a big deal in itself. And that's when we, um, put out, um, Holiday from You, which is a really cool record. And a guy named Arl Lanny, who uh, produced all of, um, Our Lady Peace stuff, he produced it. And we had, we had uh, Rob Thomas kind of, you know, championing the band at the time saying, come on, these guys are really good. You got to give them another shot. So, uh, the lava imprint of Atlantic signed us and the album's great. It's a really good album, but you know, our last song, uh, or our, our, our last goodbye, which was the first single off the record. It's an adult contemporary potential hit that I wrote with a guy named Desmond child who wrote living La Vida Loca. It was my first co-write. That was a crazy story. Um, but, um, it goes to radio and adult contemporary radio decides to like fold in 99 yeah. Now, one of the biggest stations, the mix or whatever it was in Milwaukee that's blowing up last goodbye folds and turns into the hog or some classic rock station. And it started happening everywhere. So the writing was like quickly on the wall. Well, and so, in, in, in going back for a sec, when you look at that time in hindsight, like you said, um, they were signing. I mean, you don't realize it at the time, but they were signing everybody. Absolutely. That's what you don't, I mean, cause you're just excited about the fact that they're paying attention to you. And it was, I mean, I don't want to dismiss anything about the signing or what happened because it was huge and it mattered so much to Milwaukee to see yeah. that happen. firsthand. And it was, it was, you know, Milwaukee kind of felt like they were a part of the boom, if you will, that explosion at the time that was happening in music. So um, that part of it was cool. You just don't realize until you start getting out on the road. That's when you start finding out, like you were talking about, how much they care about you. And yeah, where the attention you. goes. It, but but even that. So okay. So let's take a step back for one second. Um, the only reason why I know that stuff is so I got fired from radio. And Ooh, uh, curious, you were in radio. No idea. <laughs> I got fired from radio and the guffs are like, you want to come work for us? And so it's kind of like, well, yeah, you know, why not? You know, 
Um, and I became their tour manager. And I'll tell you, it was, we, I, I wasn't, I wasn't kidding. I'm going to go back to the van thing for a second. These are the things that matter. So you guys got, you guys got an advance, right? Because you had already had, you had already, for the most part, written the album, correct? Yeah, like, so done. when they, when they signed you, they didn't say, here's the money, go make an album, correct? No, it was already done. Uh, they let us go back and record a few newer songs because there was a year lapse or so. So we recorded three or four new songs and combined them onto that independent um, release. And, and it was put it's, that it's, out. And it's quite a learning curve, right? Because now you're into this world of how their business works. You've got all your ground men. Those are the guys that work, you know, all the all the reps, if you will, the sales reps that represent all the radio stations. Then you've kind of got the big picture of all the releases that are coming out. And like you were talking about, about Matchbox 20 coming out around the same time. We'll get to that in a sec, because that was an interesting journey there. But in the the early days, you do find out really quickly. I mean, I remember how excited we were because you guys had gotten your kick-ass van. <laughs> custom van, right? Remember mm-hmm. the custom van? Yeah. Who picked out the van by the like what was the process of like, here's the money, let's go get a van? Like what what is the process of a band trying to go get a band or to get a van to go on tour? A van band, a band band. Yeah, we actually named her uh, Shirley, which was uh, we were at Smart Studios in Madison, um, the finishing the Smart Studios, yeah, where that Nirvana record I think was recorded. Um, Butch Vig, that's Butch Vig Studio, and he um, uh, Shirley Manson, correct? Mm-hmm. And yep. then uh, Garbage. Garbage. Uh, so we saw them in the studio because we were doing a few tracks to add to that indie release as we're getting ready for Atlantic release. Um, and uh, we were just so, we thought she was so hot and so cool that we went and got a van cause we got this money, but we wanted like a, a party van. So it wasn't like a cargo van. It was like no. pimping, like reclined seats. Um, <laughs> and we called her Shirley. Yeah. I lots remember of, stopping off of at my memories. house to get, this just goes to show you how long ago it was. We stopped at my house because I had one of those TV sets that had a built in VHS player in it. And we were just excited to be able <laughs> the to have college dorm room special. Oh my God. And we were so excited to have like a bin of VHS tapes and that lasts about 15 hours into the trip. And then you've seen everything and that TV <clears> is of no value anymore because what was the TV running on? Just the power from the car or were you? Yeah. Yeah. You had to, you had to plug it in there and we've, you know, we put it in between the two driver's seats, the captain's mm-hmm. seats, you know, dude, was great road trip mode, dude. It. Well, that's the other thing people don't understand the dynamic, you know, that was a shared thing, right? Everybody had to put their time in driving yeah, because it, and, and, and Gordy, I'd be curious to get your description of this. Touring <clears throat> is not as pretty as everybody thinks it is. And the way the tour is pretty together, well, because you only see the shows, right? You see, you see the drinks in the dressing room and all Bob Seeger takes a jet home every night. What's but, the problem? <laughs> but we would get the tour schedule and it'd be like, you know, you're playing in whatever city. And then you didn't even stay over that night because you had to get to the next place that was like 12 hours away to play the next night. You remember those? The days? work is in the travel, baby. The work is in the travel. Yeah. I remember how quickly we would uh, complain to uh, Ken, like, hey, dude, like, can you get us like, from city to city, like that's maybe three hours away versus like 12 or 18. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. You're with your best friends. You've got great stories and you're rocking and there's lots of pretty girls and drugs and, you know, uh, the backseat of the uh, van reclined completely to a bed, which ended up being, you know, kind of a 
makeout pad. Yeah. So no uh, black lighted tales from the road. Yeah, but it's like we're taking turns. You know, I remember driving my shifts and like, man, I'm getting tired. Like, I hope I don't effing crash this thing. And then uh, pit stops at all the quick marts and getting snacks and food and. Did Brian wear that hat when he was your band manager? Nobody knows who you're talking about. No, I know, I but I I had a band manager look. Mm-hmm, just to be yeah. clear, what was that it, look? It was you wouldn't wear crisp. a tie. Yeah, I I had I had band yes. manager sideburns. Yeah. Ooh, Luke Perry. I wore. Um, yeah, he I, did look kind of like Luke Perry. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, if Luke Perry had bad hair, I, I was going to say Luke Perry with a chufro. <laughs> I had that, uh, my hairy arms, and a lot of button downs, a lot of button down manager shirts. Is that was that? Did you feel though that as you wore those clothes and you were like buttoning that last button, like now nah, I'm going to go manage some shit? Like, yeah. did you feel yeah, like it's a, yeah. it's a psyche? You it helped had you. To look, you had to. I'm telling you, dude. And it, this well, you had to stand apart from the band, right? You did have to. Yeah. yeah. You, needed, you, needed you a could not one. look yeah. like you were like the tambourine player or some shit. You had to get in there like, I'm the manager. Yeah, absolutely. No, because they, venue to venue, you had to get people to take you seriously. The band yeah. had needs. The other band, the, the, the venue had needs. You know what I mean? Like, and, and, and honestly, I think the hardest part of that initial tour is you go in, you're like, oh my God. This band is on Atlantic Records. This is a major record label. We've got Dude. tour support. We got our kick-ass van. And let's go. And you pull up to the first place, and everyone's like, yeah, I don't give a fuck about you. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Mm-hmm. That, that was way too quick. Mm-hmm. Way too quick. And they don't mean anything by it. John, I'll give you a perfect example. It would be no different than getting booked at a comedy club. And you come in, and you're like, we're, we're in this together, right? They're like, no, no, just go over there and leave us alone. And you're like, okay, that was quick. You know, and... And, 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 and Gordy, talk about the psyche of what it's like from that high to the reality of the road and how you have to try to process that information to get yourself in a place to be okay with the grind that you just found yourself in after everything you just went through. You're going to be the next Led Zeppelin, right? And yeah, now, that's, what, that's what they told us. Yeah. And now you're opening up for the chicken special. Yeah, absolutely. And the farther away that we got from Milwaukee, the less and less people... So here you are, a young band playing in front of thousands of people. And then the farther we got away, I mean, there'd be, there'd be times where there was like two or three, four or five people in there. I remember playing in South Dakota and uh, I was like, they have no clue who we are. And I remember we can always tell if it was going to be a good show based on um, whether they had our posters and stuff up. Do you remember how many yes. times you'd be like, uh, there's no posters up. Where, where, where's the band's? posters and it, it we sent yeah it had yeah. to be tough for you because you had to manage manage like that stuff and then the band's moodiness and expectations but you know as you're doing the grind and feeling defeated um that's when alcohol helps and you yeah. can see you can see why that kind of you know starts you know you know certain rock guys fall into that kind of pattern because it, you need something to pick you up to be able to walk up on stage and the five people yeah or i would imagine the same thing if you're like a huge band and having to get up there every night and do it you know it becomes tiring but you know it's as soon as you're off the road you can't wait to get back yeah on the road and then you'd have moments where all of a sudden we pull up into springfield missouri and a 500 
see club is sold out and we're like, Oh my gosh, they actually know who we are. And this is like, we've never been here before. So it's, it's a lot of up and down and it's addicting, but you know, it's definitely what's looking back at it. Tiring. What's the biggest, um, asshole thing you've ever asked from Brian, like on the road, like what's the biggest thing like you or any of the band members were like, we got to have this. And Brian was like, yeah, but that's not going to, and you were like, no, 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 no. We need it. Like, uh, prosciutto. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know what? He's, he's painting a picture. Like shaved, shaved prosciutto from, from, uh, from Italy. You're like, uh, Nigel Tufnell with the small bread. You're like, I can't fold these. You know what? You have to understand. We were touring at a time where I had, I was using, first off, they weren't that demanding. If you want to ask you, we had $15 a day per diems for everybody. We had a crew that rode in a separate white van and they had to because they smelled. And <laughs> um, and every once in a while, if you want to say the meanest thing that they would do to me, they'd make me go and go into the crew van. And they knew how much <laughs> that pissed me off because the crew van was literally just a white van with seats in it. And, and it just it and it carried everyone's dirty laundry. Yeah. They had and, and God the bless them. Suite. Yeah. Yeah, they were great people. Yeah, but you just didn't want to be around them because they just like ruined your game. And yeah. after a show, they'd always be kind of coming. Like when they, when they got their job done, they'd be hovering towards where the party was and kept getting closer. And like all of a sudden, <laughs> like, dude, man, I'm like, I'm I'm getting ready to jam for this group of girls. What are you doing, man? You know. So it's like they always ruined your game. Yeah, and my job, uh, <laughs> I would say, if you watch Almost Famous, but take out all the extreme nature of it, that that's what a tour manager's job is. It's just to kind of like keep people separated, keep people together, keep people going. Like I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't mess around much because I was like, I've always taken things. Well, you make fun of me, John. I take things very seriously. I'm always trying to make sure that things are, you know, staying in line. And 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 so like that, what that that was never. I think I put more pressure on myself than anything. But what I was saying was. You were good though. You're a good tour manager. I try. Honestly. I will say that I did have to communicate via, um, I remember we had the, uh, um, uh, not texts. We had, um, uh, beepers, pagers, but we had the fancy pager, the one that you could text a little bit of information on it. Instead of just a phone number, you could, you could send a message, but our messages were always the same. Call the office. Like that was literally it. Like it was just your, your brother who was the manager of the, of the band Milan. His, his messages were always just, just, just call me. Like it didn't, 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 cause you couldn't, you had to pay too much, right? For too many words. So instead it was just like, just give me a call. Just, and, just and buzz the, me. Yeah. And then you had to go to a, a pay phone. phone. Yeah. No one wanted to, you could ask at a club, he'd be like, Hey, can I use your phone? It's long distance. Then no. Like, right. Like, like people don't understand. That was a quite, that was a, a typical conversation where you're calling, if you're calling long distance, no, you can't use my phone. Oh, you know what, okay. you, you know, what's crazy about that is if we came out, you know, 10, 15 years later with everything that's happening with technology, um, we'll probably still be touring left and right 24 <laughs> seven. Uh, back then you couldn't get the word out. You'd have to, I think we had to send like a, a pigeon or something to be able to, to, get, to get a message to New York. Well, to go back to what you were talking about, about going into some cities and, and being surprised at your audience, that's when we learned the power of, um, uh, college radio in certain towns that were into you. And if they were into you, then, um, you got to, you got more people to show up and then you get to these other venues where they just didn't care. And you were just another band that was there that week. And it also, I think we learned quickly too, 
depending on what night of the week you were booked at that venue says a lot about who you were to them as well, right? Absolutely. The um, um, the Monday night band's a lot different than the than the Friday night band. And I re- do you remember uh, you and I had a conversation, and I want to uh, I'm telling this for John, but we I don't remember where we were. I think we were in somewhere in Colorado, and I and I have a picture of this. There was a sandwich board that said chicken special and the guffs. <laughs> Mm. We got there and it was like this open restaurant and you just, it finally broke you because yeah. you were just like, Dude, that's like doing? the puppet show. That's the yeah. puppet show in Spinal Tap. It's like, yeah. And, and I remember you were just like, what are we doing? Like, what is, what is this? Like, yeah. I thought we signed to a record. Like, you, you remember that? I do actually. Cause I, I think I got so pissed off that I went across the street and got my nipple pierced. <laughs> what a weird thing to do when you're angry. Yeah. that's it dude don't you remember that that was in boulder was it boulder boulder one of those ones anyways but it was in colorado and then you tried to talk me out of it because you're like gordy you got it you got a show tonight and tomorrow and we were opening the next night with the verb pipe and i remember wow i remember i i picked the wrong nipple because it was the left one (laughs) where my strap was hitting so, oh. so I should have picked the right one. So then that night, we're opening for the Verb Pipe. They had a big hit, the freshman at the time. And I'm wearing, of all things, a white shirt. So I, my nipple starts bleeding. But I, I, <laughs> I think a lot of people thought it was like, like, wow, that guy's intense. This guy's bleeding from this, his heart. He's really into it. <laughs> he's bleeding. Uh, he's bleeding from his heart. Absolutely. And we did after that. Colorado was one of our favorite states oh, to go back to. Awesome. But I, so the night that the night, the first night of chicken, I did I, what I believe to be my most inspirational and famous speech that night. Yeah. Oh, is this your Jason Hayward moment? Um, probably not. Oh. What I said was, I said, guys, I, I remember sitting the band down because it was, it was, it was a rough start. And I remember sitting down and going, cause we just, just, we already knew it was going to be a bad night. We just knew there was, there was, they're going to be performing to a chicken sandwich. We knew that. And it wasn't but good. It, cause that's what we had. Yeah. <laughs> so it wasn't even like, you weren't even like, this is the best. You know what? The chicken sandwich deserved top billing, but no. So my speech was, you know what? God damn it. You're performers and you've got a job to do. And it doesn't matter whether there's five people or 5,000. You give it your best. You put the best show forward every night, no matter how many people were in there. And I think I was kind of waiting for that, like a round of applause. It didn't happen. But I will say that they were like, okay. I mean, I don't know if you remember any of that or not, but you guys were like, right, no. f- you know what? Fine. Fuck it. Yeah. You know what? You're right. Like, cause we didn't have any other options. I do. I no. do. Cause you were like, after you got done, we were all motivated. And it's like, you know what? He's right. And then you're like, and Gordy, pass me the honey mustard. <laughs> <laughs> I need to put something on this chicken. <laughs> so uh, it was, yeah. It, but you know, at the end of the day, as tough <laughs> as the road can be, you know, the long drives, we, you learn real quickly how to entertain each other and find the, and find the humor and the joy and all of the struggle. And that's kind of what I got out of that first tour was that things didn't go the way you thought they were going to go out of the box, 
but we found a way to enjoy it anyway. And yeah, it was, it was friends. It was, it was like friendship forming and, and memories, um, you know, being made in the moment. And I remember just like, as we're talking, just things are floating through my head. Like we had John, we had a ping pong, uh, tournament at oh, right. one of the houses that we stayed in. Nice. We actually had brackets and you might be surprised or probably you're not, but I ended up winning the <laughs> tournament and that's a true story. Um, but no, we got dressed up. Remember we put our socks all the way up and we were like, uh, you were athletes. Yeah. We put shorts on and we had tank tops and we were taking it really seriously. But, uh, no, it was, you know, when I, when I think about those times, there's just so many wonderful stories and, and you also that was the same place when i learned that if you're not going to do mushrooms with people don't oh, hang yeah. out with people with mushrooms. yeah that's right because you're not going to get it you're not going to know what the hell's going on <laughs> it's not fun unless you're part of the game that's what i learned there the first time we got to colorado by the way i was like i'm gonna exercise i had never been to colorado since i was a kid didn't realize mm-hmm. that the air was thinner because that's how stupid i was I got up in the morning because obviously these are band guys, so they're going to sleep in. I went for a run and I lost my breath and I simultaneously didn't know where the fuck I was. And I was lost for hours. That's their sweet panic attack. Yeah. Yeah. Can't breathe. I'm lost. (laughs) I'm lost. Good job. Good job, tour manager. These guys are in really good hands when you don't know where the hell you are. That always is really helpful. (laughs) That's Um, that's the making of a more recent news event where people are getting lost and not being found for weeks on these trails out, out west. So you're yeah, lucky, well, you're lucky that you didn't get claw pawed by some bear. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, so the, the, the question is you get, you get this thing on it. Like, where do you think your head was at when you put in all the time and the energy? And then we got put together with matchbox 20. And it was at that moment that I think that all of us realized that there are two different worlds here when it comes to record labels. Because I always tell people, I thought it was pretty unique that we got to see the transformation of what it means to have a hit song. And remember how we would go city to city and we started even with them. Yeah. And they were opening up for us. At, yeah. At the beginning. You wanna, were you guys wanna... taking turns? Yeah. We were on tour <laughs> with the Jars of Clay and the samples. And uh, we were the opener. They were co-headlining. And uh, we ended up being the darling childs of the tour because um, Jars of Clay was kind of the headliner, even though it was a co-headline build. And their crowd is very um, Christian-based. And the samples are a bunch of weed-smoking, you know, hippies from, from, uh, I think it's from Boulder. Yeah, they're from Boulder, yep. And uh, so I think they became kind of the... uh, you know, the, the, I don't want to say, I don't know if it was a nemesis or just the, all of a sudden they became, you know, the team to not root for. So the crowd started rooting for us and, uh, it was a great tour. And then once the, the samples fell off, uh, matchbox 20 came on and they were kind of opening, we were the middle slot and, uh, right away we just formed a great friendship. And I think they looked up to us because we were already touring and and uh, had a little bit of rock vibe. But I remember just going from town to town, and uh, when we did uh, an independent tour with them, seeing, you know, a, a show in, in Phoenix, Arizona, in front of, 
you know, 20 people to the next night, um, turning into 30 people and the next night turning into 50 and the next, it just kept on growing. And at the time their single, the first single wasn't the one that really made things happen for them. Um, their first single was kind of just, you know, teeter tottering, not doing much. And then a a station outside of uh, Birmingham or in Birmingham decided to play push and that started taking off like crazy. And you can see how the label all of a sudden decided to shift gears and they saw that they potentially had something in the fact that push was organically (coughs) becoming a, becoming a monster. And then all of a sudden it was just like, you know, VP GM, everybody's coming to the shows and you'd be in the dressing room afterwards and they'd be all around Rob (laughs) and we'd be like off to the side, like the bastard stepchild. Um, It's tough. You know, it's tough when you're, when you're used to, to winning and you're used to being, you know, successful and, and happy and, you know, to be invited to the, to the, to the dance, but to not be selected to actually dance the last song. It's, it's kind of a tough thing. So it was a eye opening experience and a defeating one, but you know, what are you going to do? But the the interesting thing about you guys, though, is you didn't you guys didn't give up. I always I I do believe that in respects to the record that you put out your first album on Atlantic Records, you got I mean, you gave it your all. I mean, we we really did try to no pun intended. We did try to push on our own. Right. Trying to get some of these local reps to get you in at the radio station. And they believe that if they could interview you or if they played the music on a Sunday night show or just anything. Yeah. We were willing anything. to do anything. Yeah. We were willing to do anything, you know, um, cause we wanted it, but just, uh, the timing, the, the luck, you know, the push wasn't on our side. And, uh, and how do you process like when, when, when you finally realize, okay, this is what it is. How, what's the psyche of somebody when they're, when they believe one thing, and it goes a different direction. How how did you guys as a band? How did you come to terms with all of that stuff? Because you you did a, you, I mean, it, I don't want to paint the picture of like it was all bad because it wasn't, but it wasn't what it was expected to be. You know, after the second Atlantic release, and we realized that it was kind of done. They gave us the record back, and now we're trying to get our team to want to pick up the record or, or see some value in the band and they're like, Oh, great band. But if Atlantic couldn't take them to the next level, then, um, I don't know if, if we want to jump in to bed with that as a band, we just kind of like faded apart from each other. Um, little space after the second release, after the second release. Um, and I this kept, is about when, when did the second one come out? Uh, 99. So this is like now 2000. I kept writing. I still had a deal with EMI as a songwriter, but you know, I can't speak on the band's behalf. We kind of just pulled apart, but still stayed in contact with each other. But for me personally, it was probably the hardest thing in my life to look in the mirror and go, okay, music failed, or at least in your eyes, it failed. Nobody wants to pick you up. Nobody wants to pick the band up. Oh, what are you going to do? You've got this degree. I went, like I said, I went to North. I went to Northwestern and got a degree in dentistry. So now I'm six, seven years removed from my dental degree. My band's fa- my band's failed. 
nobody wants us. And now I got to figure out, now I'm going to fix teeth? Like, how is this going to happen? Luckily, I had an older brother who was a dentist, and he took me under his wing and <coughs> kind of brought me up to speed. And, you know, fast forward 20 years now, and, you know, the folks don't know this because we haven't talked about it, but I have, you know, a split type of life where I spend a few days in Chicago being Dr. Crawl. Um, and I think I'm a really good dentist. A, a lot of people like me. And I think I owe that to some of the, the music that I've experienced and lived. Um, Interesting. Why do you say that? Just because, you know, there was, uh, to the music that I play, there's a softness, there's an emotion, there's a kindness, there's a gentleness. And when you're a band touring, you know, you're wanting to be nice to people because you want them to like you and you want, you know, them to spread the word of what you're doing and, and go, you know what? I like that band. They were great and they're really good people. And I had a chance to talk and meet with so many people more than probably the average person gets to do in a lifetime when you're traveling from city to city. So I think it shaped me to be kind and humble. And, you know, as I got back into dentistry, not having much um, confidence, I think that shaped me as to how I became as a doctor and as a clinician. And uh, I'm, you know me, you've known me for a while. I'm gentle, soft-spoken, and, you know, I care about making sure that people feel good and comfortable. So I think that that, that kind of helped me be the kind of doc that I am. And, you know, I have three practices in the city and then midway through the week, I go to Nashville and I'm there with my, my family and my kids. And I write songs for an indie guy and, uh, you know, I'm living life to its fullest. And I enjoy it. People that go, what do you do for a living? I go, I fix teeth and write love songs. That's awesome though. You know, it's, it's like two sides of my brain. It's like left brain, right brain. And, um, to see how they work with each other. Cause even in a right, you know, I can be very right brain, but I'm always, my left brain's always like deciding to be analytic and like, Oh, that lyric or that, Oh, that chord progression or how you did that. So I think it just shapes me to be the writer that I am and it shapes me to be the, uh, you know, the doc that I am. And I wouldn't change, I wouldn't change anything, you know, but that moment 20 years ago, I look in the mirror and I'm like, you're a failure. How the heck are you going to do this? This is like, it's not like all of a sudden I'm going to just, you know, cozy up to a computer and start typing stuff. I had to be in people's mouths. I had to like, they had, they were trusting me to be like, take care of them. So it's like, wow, I haven't done this in a while. What am I going to do? But, you know, I guess everybody has to, uh, be somebody's first patient at some point. That's true. Hey, that's true. Hopefully they didn't walk out on you halfway through the procedure. You well, know, it's different when it's like you're, it's your first, you're like practicing your first haircut or something, but you're like going in and talking about teeth and shoving metal in yeah. there and shit. It's like, hey. And at the end of the day, John, it's like, it's just the tooth, man. It's not like, it's not like <laughs> yeah, dude, that's why you got 500 in your mouth or whatever. Yeah, I'm not can, a dentist. You yes, can, you are. Oh, wait. Uh, you, could, you could grow one. <laughs> dude, I've been growing out my teeth in quarantine. Okay, is that, good. Is that bad? Yeah. <laughs> 
No, well, it'll be interesting to see how that's going to play out in a couple months from now. You're like a shark. Um, the, I uh, rose. The, the one thing I don't think you're giving yourself and the band credit for, though, right now, is that you guys have and always have had an extremely huge and loyal following. Specifically, you know, I don't you. I, I can't speak for the Chicago area, but I can say for the Milwaukee area, you guys, even over the years after you stopped making albums. I mean, you could still draw. And and I want to talk about the draw just for one second. When you look back on your career, where was your most fun performance when you were touring? And it, do, it doesn't have to be size-based, right? Because you were everywhere from New York to New Orleans to wherever, you know, um, to Dayton, Ohio. Um, that's the first. And then what was the the biggest crowd that you played in front of that really gave you the rush of what we always talk about that that people that are in the music business get to feel so it's a twofold question um as far as the biggest i remember crash was on the radio we were just newly signed and new rock did a a new rock fest Mm -hmm. yes and uh at that time, you had bands like No Doubt and, you know, Weezer and all these just killer bands. And we walk up in our hometown as the new signed band in front of 25,000 people at the Marcus Amphitheater. And they're all singing Smile and Crash. I mean, that was cool. That was like, you know, we've arrived. And That then, was amazing, um, yes. Um, I, you know, I mentioned Springfield, Missouri. That was like the farthest we were ever away. And there was a line out the door. We sold out a 500 seat club because the station in town, the rock station was playing our, our songs. And we walked up. That was the first time we felt like, oh my gosh, this is what it feels like to go to a new town. And there's people that you don't know that are there waiting to see you it's like there's no better feeling in the world than that and then as far as the hometown like you were talking about wisconsin fans milwaukee fans they wanted us you know they helped us they wanted us to to succeed and they stood by us over you know all these years we just played our 30th uh year anniversary show and sold out a night at the paps theater which is about a Oh, that's awesome. 1,500 seater, 1,400 seater. And then we almost sold out the second night. They added a second night and that was almost sold out. So to think that there's still people that like what we do and now they're coming with their kids. And I'm like, (laughs) you know what? You know, you know what, kids? It's like your folks met at a guff show and they probably (laughs) conceived you after a guff show. So, and even now, you know, to, to, to date, you know, when I'm on social media and people are, messaging and people love it's a part of history it's a part of you know milwaukee history and i'll keep playing as long as people still care i always said even if there's one person out there listening i'll still kind of play do you think that you remember we would when we would go to new york and do you by the way um, it's common knowledge on this podcast that I am a huge Charles Bronson fan and just with 1974 where New York was just a shithole. But 
do you remember the first time we rolled it in New York City and it was a garbage strike and and remember we remember we were driving because we got in late Sick. and and we were driving in New York City in the middle of the night. And it's not the New York City that it is now. Even back then, I think they were still trying to clean up Broadway. Do you remember that first time we rolled in, and and what that experience was was, was like going to those types of cities and thinking to yourself, okay, we got a shot. You know, you know what I mean. You have that. We're going to play New York City. Yeah, I mean, I remember the feeling of of you know pulling up into that town was just absolutely electric. Um, as far as the garbage strike, you would probably know it better than I was since I was probably high in the back seat. <laughs> You're like, just get me to the show. I was, I was high in the back seat on my pager. <laughs> did Getting we some play pages, dude? But did we play? I, I'm almost for sure we played CBGBs, correct? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Wow. That's I, awesome. Yeah. And so uh, a couple years ago, uh, my wife was working in Ohio and we decided to go with her. And so while she was working, I took the kids to Canton, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But I also went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they've got the awning from CBGB's. And I, I grabbed my boys and I brought them. I'm like, guys, your dad was with a band that played there. And they're like, mm-hmm. okay. And then they just walked away. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, I just wanted them to get the gravity of that club. Cause it's, I mean, shit. I mean, and we knew going, remember what a, what a shithole that place was. Mm-hmm. Would you, it really genuinely, have you been there, John? I've not been there. No, but oh, I mean, it was, uh, it was, I mean, you still wanted to play. I mean, I don't want to speak for you. That Gary, was, that was the thing. It's like the floor of the whiskey was really disgusting, but like you still wanted to be on that stage. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's funny that you, uh, you mentioned Cleveland because I, I remember uh, one of the worst shows we ever played. <laughs> John, here we are, like a bunch of you know twenty-five-year-old sex pots, and we're like <laughs> selling our sex up on stage because it was like when somebody said, well, "You know, what kind of music is the Guffs?" It was kind of like we call it chick rock or you know girl rock because um, the first twenty rows were always girls, and we were loving being rock stars, and we loved you know playing our emotional brand of alt rock. And I remember we were in Cleveland opening for Annie DeFranco. Oh my God. I love Annie DeFranco. Yeah. That's when uh, she was a lesbian. I don't know if she still is. I think she's married to a guy. I think so too. And I say that politely. Yeah. I remember we, we were opening for her and we walk on with all of our sex and it's a sea of girls. Oh, and they're not and into they you at all. Get your dick swinging, <laughs> cock swag, get out of here. Not at all. Like, it was like golf clap. Like, uh, and it's not like we were <laughs> extravagant. You know, we were just emotional alt rock that dudes. worked on girls. And they, man, we walked off. It was just like, oh my God. It's like, uh, let's get to the next city. <laughs> but that but that happens it's not unique to you guys i mean that happens to every band it happens to every comedian it happens yeah. to any performer that goes somewhere you go into every place every venue every town thinking they're gonna like us they're gonna yeah. like me everything's gonna be just fine and you know what sometimes that's not the case it's just not and you but the the beauty of at least with the music is you just keep going you're like get through the set right yeah and you got the guys behind you i couldn't imagine what you guys you're <laughs> up on stage and Flopping. and people don't like what you're doing yeah. and you have to be up there for an hour no matter what and you're like okay great this is going to be good i mean are there moments here i'm going to let me be the interview or <laughs> are there moments when you're up there and you're like 
get pissed off and then you turn into a dick? Or are you always fighting till the last minute trying oh, to be great? Or do you just all of a sudden go, well, fuck you guys if you guys don't think it's funny? I did. I had, I did that once a I long time you. ago. I can see you doing that. I was mad. Well, because I, I'm in, I'm in control. When I don't have, when I feel like I've lost control, complete and utter control, then yeah. yes, I, you, you, I, you can push me. I do. I, I did learn a long time ago from, you may or may not know this guy's name, but Nipsey Russell. I, I'll never forget <laughs> what he said to me. He of course like, I do. If they're not into you, find somebody that is and focus on that. That was kind of mm-hmm. his one little tidbit. Cause you know, somebody like Nipsey Russell, you know, he came from a world where he was opening up for like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and singers. He was opening for singers, which is a very hard thing to do to be a stand up, a performer when people are there to see a singer. Right. So he had to learn how to fight through that stuff. So it, it was great information. But, you know, like anybody, I, uh, you know, I, I did. I, I there's a couple nights where I remember basically telling everybody this to buck off. And, you know, let me, let me tell you what happened. They didn't care that I told them so. Mm-hmm. It didn't. John, what was your takeaway from I, I've only, I, I get, I go from like uh zero, like smile to fuck you when people are like, if I can tell that they're talking during a show and that talking is ruining the show for other people, mm-hmm. I become very, I get really angry. And I, I feel like it, if it gets to that point, it's been going on for so long that I just finally snap. I'm like, what the fuck is your problem kind of deal. And then if you're in the back of the room and you don't know what's happening, you're like, Hey, why did he just talk? He was talking about his wife. Now he sounds like a lunatic who's mm-hmm. just swearing at the front row. And then you have to go back into like, Hey guys, marriage is crazy. Like it's just, I try to maintain, but it's very difficult sometimes to not get upset. And I, but I don't get mad if they're not laughing. If they're not laughing, that's fine. If they're not laughing, but they're being respectful during the whole performance, I don't give a shit. They just don't like me. There'll be another comic coming along that they will like. That'll be fine. But, but if they, if they kind of like go against like the idea that they're, fuck you. And it's like, okay. All right. Well, and I, I imagine that there's a rhythm that you're looking for just like we are when we're playing. Yes. Yeah. You might, might be looking for a break in changing the vibe to be able to allow to maybe segue off of that negative feeling and then go into mm-hmm. something else. Cause there's times live where I would do that, where it's like, guys, I'm going to play like they're not listening. Let me try to engage them with something. And then we'd, I do something solo or I do something because the Guffs always had a, a song where it was just me and the guitar. And then all of a sudden you might notice that, hold on a second. They, they just changed the feel of what's going on and yeah. I'm going to re-engage. So, yeah. 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 With music, I feel you can take it down you can get more intimate and then people will be like, Ooh, what's that? And they'll lean forward kind of deal. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of times with comedy, even when you're doing that, if they're so engrossed in their own conversation, they're not going to notice you taking it down to really whisper. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking like about something very serious and you could be talking about them and you know, dousing their heads in gasoline. They wouldn't know. I, I appreciate you guys letting me take over the show. <clears throat> hey. oh, you're a great, you're a great interviewer. So I, I want to go back to the, the, the headspace of like how to, how going, using New York as a perfect example. I remember there was a couple times that we were there and you guys, I don't desperate's the wrong word, but like you, you know, like anything, like any, you, you, you want the attention from dad, which was Atlantic mm-hmm. records. And I remember we would go there every once in a while and try to fit in with the in crowd. And I, we could feel that the in crowd just wasn't interested. Right. Yeah. How do you, when well, you like the time at, I, I met Jeff Buckley. Yeah. <laughs> I met Jeff Buckley too. That didn't go well for me either. In a separate and I love, I love him and his music and i was just like gushing and 
you know, it's so funny is like when you, when you, uh, meet a, like, uh, somebody that's big and you're starstruck, you always think they're going to be like six foot three. And he was like five foot four or something. You know, it's just like, why is everybody so small? Yeah. He's not a Paul Bunyan. But yeah, it's, it's, it, do you think looking, looking at who you are now and how you're approaching music and who you were as a young kid trying to break into the business and you look back on that, that really trying to fit in and really trying to push your agenda and how the machine is like, Hey dude, go away. And you process it differently probably now. Are you, are you probably, I'm assuming you, you, the way you look at it now, you would not approach it the same way you did when you were 25 years old or 26 years old. No, but you always want to fit in. You want to be invited, you know, to the party. Even if you can say, even if you want to reject the invitation, at least you get the invite. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, with age comes wisdom and a certain clarity that maybe he didn't have as a 25 year old. So, um, I mean, you get beat up and you get back up and every time that happens, you, you learn from it. And I think you show a little bit more grace and cool. And like you were saying, John, you know, you control, you know, you try to somehow reestablish controlling the narrative. And, uh, I didn't have that, you know, back when we were trying to still get attention. I remember going to New York and like changing up the set and we're going to play all the new songs. So they're going to, we're going to show them what they're missing. And it was the wrong thing to do. The right thing would have been to play them the hits that they signed us for. Right. You know, so they can be, you know, like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's why we signed them. That's why we are into them. Instead, we're going to show them the new stuff, what they're going to be missing. And it's just like nobody, nobody cares, you know. So, you know, I so, people make that kind of it's like when a band plays their new record and they kind of I hear that a lot. And I'll, I'll be honest, I went to an Iron Maiden concert once and. They came out and they're like, guys, we're going to play our new record. And the, it hadn't come out yet. It was like going to come out in a week or whatever. And the crowd went crazy. That's and awesome. we heard a brand new Iron Maiden record. And, and then at the end, he played like Number of the Beast and Run yeah. to the Hills or Running Free or whatever. But like, <clears throat> for the most part, it was all brand new songs I'd never heard before. I was like, holy shit. And I enjoyed every second of it. Yeah, but that's what real fans, real supporters do. They want, you know. They want you to keep growing as artists. Yeah, they're not there just for the the moment that you were successful. They're there for the the long haul, and that's what's been wonderful about Guff's fans. They've been with us every step of the way, and they love obviously hearing the hits. But they've embraced a lot of the new stuff that I'm doing. You know, well, and you guys also had a pretty big catalog before you of 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 music before you even signed to Atlantic Records. I mean, you had quite a history in in, in not only in Milwaukee but just history um, you know, from songwriting and, and and the amount of songs that you had available and that was one of the unique things that from from my standpoint and I'm sure this is many bands can say this from wherever they were from is when you do get a a great and loyal following. I mean, it's really nice to be able to pull in songs that that you love as well because you have this big catalog that you can dig deep into it and your mm -hmm. fans are like yes they're just as excited as you are to dig into a song that you haven't played for a while mm -hmm. to to um get into the catalog I, I i i would love to have you play um uh the song that uh uh um everybody uh, that, that that we've been we've been referencing obviously you know your success uh with the guffs and and for those of the people that in this generation that are listening to this type of podcasting stuff may not be familiar with, but before we get to you playing a song, which I appreciate, 
uh, going back to New York for just a second. And I think I've told John this story before, but you were there to see it in live time. So I might as well bring it up now. There was a time we were visiting Atlantic Records in New York and we were sitting in the A&R guy's office and this just this guy came in. He was a buddy of mine. He used to be a, a, a rep. And then he started managing a little band called Kid Rock. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when they came in to visit us? We were sitting in the office. Okay, so Kid Rock comes in the office because he's with this guy that I knew from radio. And we're talking. And it's Kid Rock, the guy that's the manager, and this other person that what Joe I, C. Was, was a small child that was Joe C. I don't even know if Gordy remembers this whole story, I but do. anyway, he's the little guy, Joe C. Oh, yeah, we're talking, right. and we're, we're having a conversation, and I'm sitting in the A and R guy's desk. I'm sitting at the desk, we're having this great conversation. And I kept looking over at Joe C. and I'm like, this little kid's kind of a kind of a prick. He's like kind of got like a fucking, you know, he's not a real smirk and a Marlboro Red. Seems like he's being a little bit of a douchebag for his age, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking to myself the whole time. Have the conversation. Now, the, the the rest of the band already knew something that I did not know. So we get down there like, guys, we got to get out of here. And I stand up and I reach over to Josie and I pat him on the head. And I'm you like, fucking asshole. It was really nice to meet you, little fella. And the look on his face went from like, he looks like eight to like, he looks like he's in his 30s. That's really weird. Like, And he wants to punch me in the dick. He walks out and these guys close the door and they're like, what the fuck, the fuck dude? was that, dude? Yeah, come you on, man. You don't touch a, a, a dwarf on the top of their a head. A grown like, man. Like, and I was like, what? He's not a dwarf. They're like, yes, he was. How stupid are you? Yeah, he was You're like, like dude, I thought Kid Rock had his child with him. <laughs> he was like 10 years old. And he lets him drink Coors Light. Yeah, he was older than you guys at the time. Exactly. And he, he I, had bigger balls than all of us in that room. <laughs> he was like, that look on his face was like, you know how badly that dude probably wanted to be the living shit. He hated you for the rest of his days. <laughs> Guaranteed. <laughs> but you know what? I guess, you know, rest in peace, Josie. But um, it, uh, you know, it, it, just, uh, it just... Live and learn. Rest in peace, Josie. I'm very sorry I patted you on the head. I'm an I asshole. Am, I am, you're I so... You, you're just so considerate and loving with that. I feel yeah. I feel so bad about it. But anyway, that was one of my one of my great memories of uh douchebaggery in uh <laughs> in New York. Would you uh so Gordy, would you be so kind to um to play a song for us? I would love to. Uh this is the song that kind of made things happen for us and still our biggest song. It's a song called Smile. Control the way I feel. She said, Won't you play with something real? I was different than the other boys, always watching, never wanting more. Control the things I do. She said, Won't you come? I wanted to. Taken to another place in time. Never felt so good, I've been so high. 
Did anyone do what are we doing here? You cannot control this anymore, my dear. Is it any wonder what are we doing now? You cannot control me anymore. I tried to live without you for a while, and I can now control you with a smile. Tried to live my life just for a while, and I can now control you with a smile. Mm -hmm. I can now control the way you feel. And she said all of this was never real. Different than the other boys, and I will leave you never wanting more. Is it any wonder what are we doing here? You cannot control this anymore, my dear. Is it any wonder what are we doing now? You cannot control me anymore. I tried to live without you for a while, and I can now control you with a smile. I tried to live my life just for a while, and I can now. Can now control you with a smile. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, man, I I, I listen to that song. And it Thanks, brings John. me, it brings me back to all the conversations we just kept having. Like, I just, we just, I don't get it. Like, why, why is it not, why is it not clicking? Like, why is it not a top 40 song? Why is it not being played on all the, and, and, you know, and again, with time, you look back and go, it just doesn't, there is sometimes no explanation for why things don't happen. I mean, is that kind of how you look back on it? Like, yeah, it's life. It's, you know. It doesn't mean it wasn't good. It's not good. Yeah, you know what I mean? It's absolutely. like, it's like, it's like a comic. It's like, a, it's the, there are guys that just do see rooms for their entire career. It doesn't mean they're not funny. Yeah. They probably murder. Some of those guys murder in those rooms and they're great, you know, but, but they just never like what I was, when I look at guys like Joe Satriani, I'm like, Oh, that's probably the best. I was listening to an interview and I was like, that's probably the best guitar player on the planet. And I was like, you know what? It's probably not. It's probably a guy somewhere in his mom's basement who blows Joe Satriani away that we will never hear of. It's like, uh, and, and that doesn't mean that you didn't have a successful run. You weren't exactly, you weren't great. You just, you're not on TV. And is that what success is, is being on TV and having millions? <laughs> sure. I mean, well, <laughs> look, dude, you, how many like people, how the question immediately, the answer is yes. Yes. It turns you're like, out. yes. So, dude, I think no, but, but I think like, if you look at 
like you said, if one, if just one person is in the audience, that makes it kind of worth it. You know, you sort of reach somebody now, uh, first of all, you, you wouldn't be able to just have a show with one person. I can guarantee that. You know what I mean? So like you've already surpassed that like open mic band type thing, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, and then you have people that support it and want to hear it so that, that there's just, uh, there, there's, um, you're still reaching people, you know what I mean? So there's never, you're still, to me, that's the success is like you, people still connect with it and they still want to hear it and they still enjoy it, you know? And it's, it's luck, it's timing. And, you know, as we're talking about that, it makes me think of, uh, one of my favorite bands growing up was a band called Journey that everybody knows and heard of them. Yes. To think that, uh, you know, it's like their, their recent resurgence is with a guy from the Philippines who they discovered karaoke singing karaoke. Yeah. Yeah. And, like from what I understand, I mean, he was potentially destitute and not doing well and on the streets. And to think that, wow, it's like, I mean, they saw it, brought him in and I mean, it's, you know, living his, his best life. But, it, it, you know, there's, like you said, John, there's, there's thousands of others that are, you know, better than Joe Satriani that just never get yeah gets heard and that's like the same thing Brian in, in Nashville it's like wow what a great song Gordon how come that's not on the radio with you know Blake Shelton because there's a thousand other songs that are even better like it's you know and and with social you know media to be able to tap into it is is amazing we get to see greatness everywhere back in the 90s we didn't have this and you had to go like really you had to be searching it out you had to be in the club when the band was playing or know someone with a bootleg or absolutely you couldn't just be like here's a link click oh i'm on my couch watching this amazing musician i'd never heard of before right now yeah and it's like if the guffs were born 10 years later there's a good chance that you know we'd still be kicking it because social media with the groundswell that we created you know could have helped keep things alive but when it's 1999 and you're still on your your flip phone yeah your fan and your fans are like twitter what (laughs) it's it was a lot hard i mean you had it was it was a completely different way of building uh, a fan base you know we had we did a fan club thing that did pretty well you guys you guys did some music for them and stuff like that and that grew that 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 helped pay some bills i mean that was the thing too is you you really are looking to develop stuff uh, a lot of times just to keep paying the bill so you can stay in the game. Yeah. And I, I think a, a lot of that people don't, you know, realize that there's sometimes, you know, you, you talk about eventually becoming a dentist and that's, there's no shame in, in being a dentist and still wanting to be a songwriter. I, there used to always be that thing of like, you had to lie. Remember John, when you start stand up, you can't tell anybody you do it. Don't tell else. anybody what you really do. Yeah. I felt, dude, I felt the same way. But also, I want to add, Brian, there's no shame in being a good dentist. If you're a shitty dentist, you should probably be a little ashamed and keep your hands out of people's mouths. But you already said you're very good. So, but my, my point is, though, to not even be able to tell people that you do something. Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Cordy, you What were you going to say about that? No, it's the, it's the truth. It's like I was so embarrassed. Like even when the band was rocking and uh, we're it's 98 and we're playing in front of thousands and we're getting ready to record our next record in Toronto. And people are like, you know, you get the one occasional goofy dude that's drunk and walks up after the show. I heard you're a dentist, man. Like, 
I could be if I wanted to be. But in the back of my mind, I was like, oh my God, that's such a bad thing. And it just didn't have to be a dentist. I could have been an accountant. It would have been the same negative. Dude, kind of, I, kind I of po- pointed, look at Brian May. I mean, Brian, Brian May is like a genius who's like, I love playing the guitar in a band, which for a genius, you might be like, that's a little low rent playing a guitar in a rock and roll outfit. Come on, man. But like Brian May is a great guitarist. He's also a genius who, when the queen was like, we're not going to be a band anymore. He's like, fine, I'll go be a genius somewhere else. And like, <laughs> just kind of rolled with the punches and was like, whatever. You know, but, but I, I realized later that a lot of people thought that that made me a more um, well-rounded and, and I'll tell you, if I'm at a party and there's a guy who writes songs and has been on the radio and is in a popular band, there's a guy who does the same thing, but plus he's a dentist. I'm going to talk to the guy who's also a dentist. It's just more life experience. It's just more interesting. So the guy in the room that's in a band and a dentist is way cooler than fuck yes dude fuck yes well john also is is interested in teeth as he i also need someone to look at this thing i got and run that's my favorite thing too (laughs) hey yeah you enjoying your hors d'oeuvres i got this it's painful and it feels infected you want to have a look yeah I'm assuming that has happened, but it has a double down on the fact that you just got done performing. <laughs> Great show, dude. Also, is this Absolutely. like a, is that has really happened? Absolutely. That's and how do you people handle? have no shame? You're right. The old me when I was young would have been like, yeah, I can't help you. I'm a rock star. The new me is so Call my office, make an appointment. <laughs> uh, what kind of insurance do you have? Yeah, exactly. Are you PPO? What are we yeah. talking here? Are we talking fee-for-service? If it's fee-for-service, I can get you in tomorrow. Yeah. Um, the new me is really into helping them. And the new me is really into whatever I am, however multifaceted I am. If I can, yeah, if that's I can, you. If I can fix a tooth well and take care of you and not hurt you while I did it, and if I could sing a song that touches you, you know, that's the new me, and, and that comes with age and wisdom and, and just accepting of all the different sides of me. The the old me would have been like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, that's what you're going to tell me after I just got done rocking? Uh, yeah, I just world. rocked some panties yeah. to the floor, and you're asking yeah. me about teeth? Yeah. Get the... And it's, always, it. it's always a dude. It's never like a girl. Of course. No woman is going to be like, I have a problem with my mouth. Look at it. Like what? No, <laughs> always going to be a guy who doesn't want to pay for some, somebody to look in his mouth. Well, I mean, I think we're learning more and more, especially now how connected, how interconnected we all are. And I'm curious, Gordy, when you started playing music, did you, did you see that back then? Did you, did you re- really truly recognize the connection or, was it, did, did youth get in the way and it was more about the adulations that you were getting versus how there, there is a give and take and that's what creates the growth. And that's what together, the togetherness that maybe we are all starting to learn now. Just curious where your head was at with that. I mean, with youth, I was worried about myself and the band and the moment that we were in. I was loving the fact that I was meeting guys and bands and touring with them and had something in common with them. And you built a little bit of that, but back in the day, you know, you couldn't just text somebody and go, Hey man, how'd the show go or whatever. So I think with age came an understanding of that. There's a reason that we're put in 
to a room together or we shared the stage together and that means something. I can't stand more than anything when I'm in an elevator with somebody nowadays and they can't fucking just look up for a second off their phone and realize that something put us in this elevator for some reason at the same moment where we can't make eye contact and just connect for a second. Um, but nowadays, it's, I think it's it's all about connection and as much as I get on my kids for always being on their damn phones, it's interesting in this time that we're going through that that's really what's kept it's, us together. It's, it's keeping us totally sane. I mean, if you, if, if you couldn't, if you couldn't, if I couldn't like talk to Brian, or we couldn't do this podcast and have video things and communicate. And like, I couldn't go online and watch, you know, old stand up, whatever. It's just like, it's, I used to rag on it a lot more <clears throat> and I'm a little bit more, Oh yeah, well, this has saved us. I, I agree 100%. It's kept us in touch. Yeah, it's it's kept us... Which is what it was supposed to do. Sorry to interrupt you. What yeah. it was supposed to do originally. Yeah, the World right. Wide Web was supposed to bring everyone, connect, make everyone connected. And while it gave a lot of ignorant pieces of shit a voice, and that is a problem as well, but at least now in this day, like kids are still able to see their friends. I'm still able to talk to my brother. I'm still able to see my mom, you know. Yeah. And we're able to engage like this. And Yeah, absolutely. It's a, well, it's a wonderful thing. I was so I'm gonna, I'm gonna so I'm gonna bring up the there there, there was a, a, a interesting thing when you when we go back to there was a point in time where we we split apart we we had our differences breakup uh, I saw well I just behind I the music that, without getting into too much detail I just you know I mean again and I I I I, I blame a lot of it on on youth and arrogance sure. and all the other things but it's like I saw things one way and I wanted things to be one way. And, uh, that was not the way the band was saying things. And we started deteriorating and it was all around the same time that the album itself was just, it wasn't happening. The first album wasn't happening. Um, you guys had started, uh, working on a second album. Uh, some of the band's personal relationships weren't going well. Yours, yeah, absolutely. yours was not. So I was falling apart with the band. You had some stuff going on in your life. And then there was, and, and I, and I, I, when I look back on this now, cause not soon after that, I kind of went, we went our separate ways for a long time, very long time actually. And, um, there was a moment that I'll never forget. And I, this was talking about how connected we all are as people. So all that stuff that I'm describing was going on. And then, I remember that there was a girl that was a huge fan of yours who had given me a letter at a show and I took it and I kind of forgot about it. And then I got a call that she died. Do you remember that? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember giving you that letter that she wrote you. And I look back on that still to this day, because ultimately, you know, I'll let you finish the story of, of how, you know, what it evolved into. And, and I just, I remember giving that to you and, and I just remember that that was one of those moments where you kind of go, Oh, okay. We're all humans. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and, and I don't, I wish I, I don't, I know I'm not explaining it properly, but it was a very tough thing. Well, put the ego aside because you realize you're all a little bit more connected than you want to let on or uh, admit. But do you remember, do you remember all that? Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd say, you know, when I look back at, that time the the fallout between me and you and the band like you said it's like we were going to go one way and uh 
we didn't necessarily think that maybe that way was with you. And, uh, it was kind of like a, a bad breakup if you look at it. Um, and maybe we all said and did things that as adults we wouldn't do, you know, but when you're young and full of piss, you know, you're going to do anything you want. But I do remember that time and, uh, we were on the road with Matchbox 20 and it was towards the end of that tour. Um, and, uh, a, a fan of ours who was a huge fan. I still remember her name, Aaron, um, passed away, um, was killed in a car accident. And, uh, I remember getting that letter from you and it's like, it didn't matter what we went through. Uh, there was still decency and, uh, respect that, Hey, you know what? This belongs to you. And I think it's important that you kind of have it and read it. And I, I remember writing a song called, where are you now? You know, from that whole experience. And I remember taking it really hard because back in the day we were so tight with our Milwaukee fans that we, I mean, they were championing us as we were climbing up the ranks and we were taking them with us. And, uh, you know, I still think about her to this day and, uh, what evolved from that letter was a song called give back yourself that we put on the second record that was kind of right. You know, as you were, on your way out, I remember we were writing some of that record up uh, with uh, Cid right? Citizen Citizen King Space cast management. Oh, right, space. right, right. Six yeah. two five, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was a song that uh, turned into a song called "Give Back Yourself," and then Rob Thomas ended up singing up the the backing vocals to it on the record. And uh, you know, we still play it to this day. And there's, I still always, you know, say it's like the song's for Aaron, so. And I remember after I was already gone from the band, the family reached out to me and I was like, it was at that point where it was, it was like you said, it was a bitter split and we weren't talking at all. And I remember just, and I remember the band calling because at that time, I think I was still working with Jeff Castellas and Absolutely. cast management and yeah. stuff like that. And I said, you know, it's kind of one of those things where you kind of go, you got to put all your shit aside, man. Yeah. And you got to realize that there's, there's, bigger, there's bigger things than your little pissy ant Absolutely. issues going on. And I remember reaching out because you, you guys were playing Summerfest or something like that. And I reached yes. out to you guys and connected you and the family. Cause I think you, I think you had not met the family up to that point. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you guys ended up uh, meeting the family. I believe. Yeah, we, we, we did. And we played the song and they were so grateful and it was tears and, and hugs. And that's the power of, of music. And, uh, you know, that's the power of decency, you know, you know, you made that happen regardless of whatever we were going through. Cause you knew that it was, you know, the right and decent thing to do. Um, and we still have a connection with Aaron and her family. And I would imagine to this day is whenever they hear that song and we play it, it's still, you know, you think of, uh, you celebrate her life and, uh, that moment versus you know it was for me it was it was kind of one of those realizations like dude it ain't about you it's just not it's Absol not about absolutely. you let it go absolutely let it go you know i mean granted we didn't we never really you know talked about it or whatever and we just kind of you know went our separate ways which is also <laughs> part of life as well people go and have their own journeys and I, um but also during that time you guys were, I, I remember you, we, I think we rented a house in Connecticut or something for a while. Yeah. Right. And you mm -hmm. guys are writing and to this day. And yeah. I don't think I've ever actually told you this, but 
the the original version you you were you were at a point emotionally that was very low if i remember correctly yeah, and you were going through some stuff personally and i remember the first time that you recorded the raw version of a song called happily ever after <laughs> i knew you were going there absolutely and i was just blown away by it I was literally just blown away by the raw nature of that song. And, and I guess for me, and, and a lot of people, I guess you, you can watch a lot of music docs and stuff like that. And that's sometimes you get insight behind songs. And the reason why I bring that up is because being there, I had insight as to where you were coming from with that song and that raw emotion was in that song. Do you, do you remember? So, you know, I'm talking about it. Absolutely. We were, uh, in Connecticut, they rented a house for us and we started writing that album, um, which turned into Holiday From You, which had Get Back Yourself on it. And um, yeah, Happily Ever After was like a complete heartbroken moment. I remember writing it there and the guys uh, were all going through the same thing. Morgan and his relationship was done. Scott, his relationship was done. My relationship was done. These are all, you know, long-term relationships that we're talking, you know, four or five, six years and marriages and things like that, um, that just disintegrated as we were trying to ascend, you know, take the guffs to the next level. And it's crazy to think that that all fell apart because of what we were trying to chase. And we were all trying to be you know, good people and, you know, have those relationships grow with us, but they weren't, they were, we were going in one way and the other relationships sadly took a backseat, which I think, you know, we all made mistakes and, we'll, you know, feel bad about that, but it, it spawned, you know, laments and heartbreak spawns great music. And, uh, we wrote a great album out of it and holiday, you know, holiday from you came from that. And, you know, Happily Ever After is one of my favorite songs ever that I've written. And it's, I remember we, you thought it was so great. We recorded it in the house. We took it to the label. It's a crappy demo version and the lyrics are barely done. And you're like, you guys have to hear this. You know, this is, these guys have tapped into some emotion and they felt it as well. Oh my God. To this day, I still have that demo. It's yeah. one of, I, to this day, Gordy, I still play that song. It is, it is, I still get emotion from that song. It's, 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 it's for me personally, obviously nobody else has it except for me, but it's like, you know, I, I, I'm saying there, I mean, you guys obviously have it, but I mean, you know, that's, it's a demo. So nobody has it. And I, I, to this day, I still play it all the time. And I still always say to myself, there's just so much raw emotion in that song, I even took it to, this is going to go over a lot of people's heads, but I even took it to Jeff McCluskey, who at the time mm -hmm. was, there's that. a, there's a whole book. If you want to know about anything about Jeff McCluskey, read the, read the, uh, uh, the book called hit makers about the radio business. But anyway, I had a really good relationship with Jeff and those guys back then. They were based out of Chicago. And I remember taking it to him too. And I was just like, I, it was one of those things. I'm like, everybody, you need to listen to me. Like you need to listen. This is like amazing. You know? And I'm all, I was always curious because after that I was gone. It was it. I was done. I was gone. And I was always curious to how you felt about the final version versus where it started. What, what your, the evolution of that specific song. Cause it's always interesting to me to having to see, you know, a songwriter write something and then where it started and where it ended up. What's your take from. When you write something that personal, there's no better version than the first version that you did of it. 
and everything else starts to pale and it lessens the sincerity of it. Um, and we took it to Arnold Lanny, who produced the record. And as a writer, at 25, 7, 28, 30, you know, you hold on to what you think it should be. It's a little bit different than the writer that I am now, because now I'm writing songs that sometimes you just hand in the rough demo work tape that's into your phone and you let them breed life to it. But back then when you're an artist and you're feeling every ounce of every lyric and every note, you know, you, you want it to sound the way that you, that, you know, it did when you wrote it, but it never does. I love the album version of it. Um, cause I just love that album, but it's hard to separate, um, as an artist, how much the first demo in that house meant to me. Cause that one, probably would make me tear up more so knowing what we were going through if you played that one for me than if you played me the Atlantic Records release of it, which I thought yeah. was kind of slick and still powerful. And that was the kiss of death for us is the label thought that was the single and it's a ballad and you don't want your first single to be a ballad. So we went to something different and uh, we probably should have just let that one continue to evolve on its own and not control what it wanted to be. Yeah. It is interesting in our own personal journey. Cause that was the beginning, not only the end, uh, the beginning and the end of, you know, my relationship with you guys, but then eventually my, also my relationship in my life also, you know, when it's, it is, it, you know, when you look back on it, you're like, wow, it's it, when you can, when you can get decades away from something and you kind of look back on it, like you're looking at you, like it's a book you read or a movie you watched. Life is very interesting when you're able to look back on your own life and not ha and, and detach yourself and just kind of analyze it for what it was. Um, it was a, it was quite an interesting, interesting time, you know, and I, and, and, um, you know, that album, um, people always ask, you know, I was still in radio at the time, John, it was the last time I was ever in radio. Oh man. One of two kisses of death for me was that I got a hold of the album and it wasn't a lot of people thought this is in Milwaukee. A lot of people thought that my grabbing the album and playing on the air was out of spite for the Guffs because of my previous relationship with them. And it actually had nothing to do with it. I did not like my uh, competition in town, which was at the time, I think was Laser 103. Mm -hmm. And so my whole reason for grabbing the album and I didn't even get clearance on it. I just grabbed it, played it on the air. And I took so much shit for doing that. I got yeah, so it was much supposed to come you out. You got some guff for playing the guff? You got some guff. It was supposed to come out, um, I think, a week or so later. Yeah, and yeah. You played it. And I remember sitting uh, in the living room at Scott's place on the east side of Milwaukee. Brian's playing our record. It's not out yet. <laughs> and uh, I was like, hey, is that good or bad? It's kind of like cool. Like it's good PR. But I, I think at the time, I think we all wanted to beat you up because we were told it was a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, in the, in, in hindsight, is it really in the big picture? Is it a bad thing? No, no. So I mean, no. the more ears you can get on something, the better off. But, yeah. but, but the, the problem was at that time, the, st the reason why people got mad is because the station I was on was not as popular as the station that they wanted to play at first. There you go. So it upset you went against the, the system. I went against the system and it upset the other radio station. <clears throat> rightfully so. And they called the record label, which got pissed off, which it all came back. And then 
you know, because there's a personal relationship, you know, some it got, people, it got yeah, dicey. Some, yeah. Some it people thought dicey. you were being malicious and yeah. And, yeah. um, it was, it was a part of me eventually no longer being in radio, but you know, was so that what? a, was that a catalyst for it was that? one of the two things? Yeah. Oh, because really? I was wow. doing, but the thing is it had nothing to do with you guys. I was being extremely cavalier back then. Like I was doing things. It's, it's not my business. It's not my radio station. Like, there you That's go. It wasn't WW Brian E East Side in the morning. No, and I should have always listened to you, but you don't know. You're young and you're arrogant and you think you have all the answers and you think you know the way. You know you, you know it all. You know it all, right? And and I never really took to which I subscribe to now, which is something that my dad told me a long time ago, and I just never listened. You know, when you work for somebody, they're hiring you to work for them, not for you to tell them what to fucking do. He doesn't say fucking. I said add that part, but it's true. You don't, when somebody asks Ooh, you to do something guy. for them, you do that. You don't do your own thing and then tell them this is what you should have been doing. Right. And that's what I was, that's, I spent a lot of my early life. That's what I did. And it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And it's like, you kind of have to take the shit that comes your way. I have to own mm -hmm. the Guffs fans being mad at me for that. I have to own you guys being pissed off for me. I have to own that because mm -hmm. I did it. You know what I mean? Like I did it without any consequence, without, without understanding the consequences of it. But again, these are the things that you learn when you look back on it. Yeah, and I was trying to screw with the system and it wasn't my place to do that. You guys were trying to accomplish, you guys had very specific goals in mind and I had no, I had no regard for that. And, and same thing with radio. So he's just, you, you, these are, these are things, you know, that live and learn. Yeah, and it, it it makes you into the person that you are now. And uh, there was never any hard feelings when when we just recently reconnected. I don't have, you know, hard feelings. Maybe, you know, if you asked me twenty years ago, maybe we'd get. <laughs> well, we're gonna re we're gonna edit this podcast and make you come across as a huge dick. So we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> maybe we'd have some old school fisticuffs going on where, you know, we'd be brawling. But no, I mean, so Wisconsin of you. But I will tell you. Again, looking back on life, one of the reasons why I felt empowered enough to get into stand-up was because I worked with the Guffs. I mean, I joke about the radio stuff, but there's a couple of things with respect to the Guffs was that touring with them and, and going into venues and being a part of that and being on the road introduced me to that world and built that muscle. But the second and most important thing that, that made me realize that I should get into stand-up comedy was I spent most of my time on the van in the van making these guys laugh, and I used to put on <laughs> puppet shows. I used to tell whole stories with 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 puppets, and like, and, and these guys were like, "Oh my god, this is some of the funniest shit I've ever seen." And all of a sudden, I was like, "Oh, maybe, maybe, maybe there's something else out there." Maybe I should continue to entertain stoned musicians in a van <laughs> while they're on the road. This could be a lifelong thing. Yeah, exactly. But do you remember the puppet shows? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, but again, that was that kind of stuff. And I, honestly, when I eventually decided I was going to do it, I, I looked back on that stuff and I said, no, I can do this. Because I've always pinpointed musicians are very hard people to communicate with on a lot of levels. You know that, Gordy. You're pretty easy to talk to, but you've been around a lot of guys that are really good at singing and writing songs but communicating and doing interviews and like socializing is not their thing. Yeah. I always know? think like in a, in a different life, I could have probably been a good politician. 
Mm. Wouldn't that have been a good thing? The singing politician. No, because I like people. So after a show, it's like, I'm kind of like an introvert, but after a show, I'm pressing the flesh and sincerely thanking people. But you're right. A lot of musicians are really kind of like not okay with social situations because, you know, they're, you know, right brain, real artsy, introverted, you know, you know, introspective thinkers. And uh, sometimes you, it's one thing to be up on stage as a barrier. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get off stage and now you got to really communicate with people face to face and up close. And I guess nowadays it's going to be six feet apart. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> with a mask on and everything. You, know, so you have no idea how they feel. Um, uh, well, man, I can't thank you enough for, uh, you know, wanting to do, uh, this podcast and it was, it was a, it was a great little, uh, you know, journey. I hope you got, you know, something out of, you know, Absolutely. Joining, uh, you know, John and I, um, before you go, would you be open to playing something off of your, uh, you know, you know what I'll do is I'll play something brand new, um, with all this craziness that's been going on, um, as a writer, I haven't been able to be in a room with people, so I've been able to communicate with people this way. And uh, a few weeks ago, when this was all kind of turning into crazy, um, I got inspired to write something um, based off of a poem that I read online um, from uh, this Instagram site. Uh, this uh, young lady who wrote a poem called When This Is Over, um, that inspired me. And the thinking was, when this is over, I'm just going to take a lot less things for granted. And I'm going to, you know, not complain about waiting in line to pick up my kids, or I'm not going to take uh, for granted, you know, a handshake with a stranger, or just a uh, coffee with a friend, or, you know, catching a movie. So I got inspired by it. And, you know, Nowadays, as I'm writing, you know, it all starts with a, a good idea and a good hook, a good title. And um, I ended up calling a buddy of mine, Joe Doyle, who's had a bunch of hits in Nashville, um, and uh, just told him I have this idea of a song. And it's not about, you know, specifically, you know, the virus and this craziness that we've found ourselves, but it's about the craziness of, of life that at any moment in, you know, in, in, in the year that anybody can go through, whether it's losing somebody that you love, whether it's feeling down, whether it's uh, getting through a sickness, whether it's losing your job and um, not thinking that, you know, there's a light on the other side. So it just inspired me and he loved the idea. And we wrote a song, um, via Zoom, you know, uh, which was kind of interesting to write. He was in Nashville, I was in Chicago. And then I put a video up on, on my Facebook, and I've never had anything really explode. Um, it didn't go viral. It went fungal. What is so, it? What does that mean? <laughs> it got under his toenails. Uh. <laughs> um, I, I imagine something going viral is millions on the view, but I usually get a few thousand views on some things. This got like over 130,000 views. Wow. So, and then I started getting all this contact from people all over the world that were sharing it and hearing it. Like, thank you for writing this. And they're thanking me for writing this. Um, and as a writer, 
to connect, it has nothing to do with money. It has everything to do about connection and to be able to connect positively in a way, um, you know, that's what you dream of as a writer. So, um, we put it out as a single. It's, I recorded it in Milwaukee. I had my track guy in Nashville do the track, sent him the vocals, you know, from my computer. He mixed it, played all the parts. So it's just crazy how it was a lesson, uh, an exercise in creative social distancing and to think that we can still create something beautiful. And it's out on iTunes and Spotify. And if anybody wants to hear it, they can hear it. But I thought that maybe that would be a good song. And that'll, uh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And this will take us out, right? So I'm just going to say thank you for yeah. uh, taking the time to do the show. Really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Good to meet you, brother. Yeah, nice to meet you, man. I've heard a lot of stories, dude. Brian is uh, talks about radio and managing bands quite often. Um, but uh, thanks for listening, everybody. And he's uh, going to take us out with a song. Thanks, Brian. Uh, happy to reconnect, brother. It was awesome. Yeah. When this is over And I find myself on the other side Where the clouds begin to break And the sun shines And the tears dry When this all ends I'll stop and take a deep breath Make a little time Visit with an old friend Reach out my hand Help someone if I can Listen to my heart Act out my new plan Live life slower When this is over When this is over I see it as a blessing Disguise. I'll view this crazy world through different eyes With blind desire When the soul ends I'll stop and take a deep breath Make a little time Visit with an old friend Reach out my hand Help someone if I can Listen to my heart Act out my new plan Live life slower This is over Over my shoulder Will I the weight that tried to pull me under When the soul ends Stop and take a deep breath A little time Visit with an old friend Reach out my hand Help someone if I can Listen to my heart Act out my new plan Live life slower When this is over When this is over, when the soul ends, 
Listening to Hollywood Anonymous. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Hollywood Anani. That is short for Hollywood Anonymous. You can also follow John individually at John Huck and myself, Brian Irwin, at Brian Irwin on Twitter as well. Both of us can be found on Facebook. You can also Google us and contact us directly, Hollywood Anonymous Guys at gmail.com. Thank you again so much for listening and please don't forget to subscribe 